0: a Bible and go with me to John chapter 18 this morning. Today we're, uh, we're entering a very different section of John's gospel than where we've been. If, if you think back with me just for, for a minute, uh, the, the events of Jesus' life unfold uh, quite steadily in chapters 1 to 12 of the gospel of John. John's narrative bounces from one feast to the next, from one event to the next, until his final night with his disciples. And then all of a sudden, John hits the pause button at chapter 13 to focus on the last few hours Jesus spends with his disciples Chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17, basically our last eight to nine months together, have primarily been listening to Jesus teach His disciples. But as we enter chapter 18, it's almost like John hits that pause button once again, and we find the narrative rolling once again into the final moments of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're no longer listening to long discourses of teaching. We're being led once again from event to event until it climaxes in the cross and resurrection of our Lord. But as John leads us to the cross there are several things he points out along the way. Uh, Little comments that he will make, uh, little descriptions he'll add, some, some background he'll provide. And each one helps us understand the cross and the kind of salvation that it brings for us. Today, John helps us see that while being supremely powerful, Jesus becomes our propitiation. While being supremely powerful, Jesus becomes our propitiation. Let's read it together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had often Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Father, I ask that you would come now and attend to the reading and the preaching of your word that we may all leave with a greater sense of, of awe at Your mercy towards us in the Son of God and His death on the cross. In His name we pray. Amen. While being supremely powerful, Jesus becomes our propitiation. That's the point and the movement of our passage. John's gonna move us from power to propitiation. If you're wondering what I mean by propitiation, don't worry. We're gonna get there soon enough. But look at look first at the various glimpses of Jesus' power as he faces his arrest. There are at least four. First of all, we see Jesus's that Jesus faces death willingly. Jesus faces death willingly. Look at the way John tells the story. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. In other words... Jesus isn't hiding his whereabouts from Judas. You know, he doesn't change things up a bit to throw off his enemy. He goes to the very place his enemy expects him to be. And this he does, remember, after telling Judas this back in chapter 13, verse 27. What you are going to do, do quickly. In other words, I'll see you in a few hours. So, it says in verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus faces his death willingly. He knows what's coming, and he still takes the disciples with him out of the the safe confines of the city and leads them right into the place of his er arrest. The the idea is that he has unflinching power in the face of death. John also highlights Jesus' power by pointing out his foreknowledge of everything going on. Jesus foreknows everything. He foreknows his enemy's tactics. He hasn't lost control of anything. In fact, it's his foreknowledge of these events that guarantees their realization. Three times he's already told us in the Gospel of John... I am telling you this. And what do you mean? I'm telling you something about the future, something that's about to take place to me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am God, essentially. Jesus' knowledge is the ultimate determining factor of everything in the universe, including this arrest. So verse 4 says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, Came forward. Again, you see the willingness behind Jesus' actions here. He didn't shrink back, he came forward. And he said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, since John has already told us that Jesus knew all that would happen to him, we know Jesus isn't asking the question out of curiosity. He knows very well whom they seek to arrest. So he must be asking the question for another reason. And that reason, the reason for this question, whom do you seek, becomes crystal clear in verses 5 and 6. And this becomes our third glimpse at Jesus' power. Jesus bears God's mighty name. Jesus bears God's mighty name. Read it with me. He says, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them when Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, in order to get the full thrust of what's going on, let me point out a few things. Most English translations add the pronoun he to Jesus' reply I am he. You can see it there in your Bibles. But the he isn't present in Greek. Simply, ego a me, I am. It can be translated, I am he, but there are certain occasions in scripture where it doesn't. It doesn't need to be translated this way. It can simply be translated, I am. And we've seen this before, haven't we, in the Gospel of John. When he's talking to the Pharisees in chapter 8, and he tells them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's referring us once again to His own deity. I Am was God's personal name that He revealed to Moses before rescuing Israel from Egypt. God said to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I Am have sent me to you. And then all throughout the scripture, I Am becomes the name God bears as He is mighty to save and mighty to judge. When other nations hear about I Am and His mighty deeds, they tremble in His presence. Their knees knock and their hearts melt away in fear. Jesus bears that same name as He goes to the cross. His response is a play on words. It's like saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And so much more than what you actually see, I am that makes a whole lot of sense out of what happens to Judas and the band of soldiers. Up to 200 men, but likely less. They draw back and they fall to the ground. Why? Jesus bears the mighty name of God. He reveals God it's a pattern throughout Scripture. God reveals Himself and people start dropping like flies. Does that mean all the soldiers knew at that moment the full extent of what just happened to them when Jesus spoke the divine name? No, it doesn't. Or they wouldn't have gotten back in up, back up to, re- to arrest Him. But Jesus had made His point for those with eyes to see he was bearing God's mighty name. Just like he said he would back in his prayer at the end of chapter 17. Turn with me there to verse 26. What does he pray? I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. And here he is on his way to the cross Bearing God's mighty name, I am. In other words, you want to see God's might in judgment? You want to see God's might in salvation? Look at Jesus going to the cross. Here in the cross is where we see God's mighty name revealed. A fourth glimpse at Jesus' power. Jesus is controlling everything. Jesus is controlling everything. He's making the first move at every point. Verse 1, he takes them to the garden. Verse 3, he comes forward to give himself up. Verse 4, he takes the initiative for the encounter. Whom do you seek? Then he asks them again in verse 7, after they're on the floor, Whom do you seek? And once they answer, he basically tells them what to do in order to fulfill his own promises. Verse 8. I told you that I am. So if you seek me, here's a command, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. It's incredible. The total control that's depicted as Jesus goes to the cross. Now let's be careful. That's not to diminish the real suffering and the hellish agony he felt on the way to the cross. Rather, John is fleshing out a complementary truth here. The complementary truth that Jesus never went to the cross as a helpless victim. He went by his own authority and his own power and his own willingness. Even though he is God and in control of everything, he chose the suffering. It's just as uh, Jesus says in John 8 and John 10... No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. Judas and the powers of darkness are not controlling anything without the permission of Jesus Christ. So Jesus faces death willingly, he foreknows everything. He bears God's mighty name and he's controlling everything. Now, if you've got that kind of power, how would you use that power? How would you use that power in relation to your enemies? Say, when a group like ISIS walks in the door and binds your hands because of Jesus... I think we get a perfect picture of how we use our power in verse 10. Peter lashes out and cuts off the ear of this this guy. We would use our power to squash our enemies. And yet what we see next is most remarkable. The supremely powerful one, Jesus Christ... Instead of using His power to destroy His enemies at once, instead of using His foreknowledge to plan a more comfortable outcome than a cross, instead of using His control to escape suffering and look out for, number one, He uses His power to become our propitiation. He uses His power to become our propitiation. You see, our sin makes us God's enemies. Jesus had every right to use His power to squash us. What does He say in Matthew 26? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Angels Jesus created! Oh, Jesus has power, folks, but what should amaze us is that he uses his power to become a sacrifice that averts the wrath of God due to us. I want you to get this because propitiation is right at the heart of the gospel and the provision of God's love and professing Christians are mocking it today. I'll say more about that in a minute. For now, get this down. Here's a definition. Propitiation describes God's act to remove His wrath against sinners in the death of Christ. Propitiation describes God's act to remove His wrath against sinners in the death of Christ. So when I say Jesus uses his power to become our propitiation, I'm saying he becomes our wrath-averting sacrifice. Our wrath-averting sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of what all the sacrifices under the law of Moses foreshadowed. You see, God was telling us a story under the law through these sacrifices. And the story goes like this God is holy and he cannot overlook sin. Sinners arouse God's holy displeasure, he is angry with our rebellion against Him. His holiness requires Him to be angry with our sin and with our rebellion against Him. Yet, God also chooses to love sinners, to bring sinners into a relationship with Him. But if He loves sinners... He must love sinners in a way that is consistent with his holiness. That is consistent with his love for what is holy and his hatred for what is evil. And that means he must satisfy his holy anger. He can't sweep sin under the rug, in other words. He must deal out the judgment. How does he do this? He provides a sacrifice to avert his wrath. All their sin goes on the sacrifice, God pours out his wrath on the sacrifice in their place this is this is the the story the sacrifices under the law are telling us and they are pointing us forward to Jesus Jesus reveals that he is our wrath averting sacrifice that's made clear in verse 11 Peter, he says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is this cup Jesus is talking about? We know it's at least a reference to his death on the cross because of the way he describes the cup. It's the cup which the Father has given him. And throughout John's Gospel, the father, it's, the, it's the Father who has charged Jesus to lay his life down, to give his life up. But we can be more specific. Throughout the Old Testament, drinking God's cup is largely a metaphor for suffering under God's holy wrath. The cup was in God's right hand, Habakkuk tells us. This is, this is the images it's using. The cup was in God's right hand, Habakkuk tells us, de- depicting his, his absolute rule. And whenever people crossed God's righteousness, whenever people despised His holiness, the cup was depicted as full of God's fierce judgment, the wine of God's judgment. And for God to pour out His cup was for Him to enact His judgment against His enemies. And they're terrible if you read them in Jeremiah 25, and Isaiah 51, and Habakkuk 2. And when God poured out His cup of the wine of His wrath, it wasn't like His enemies had the choice of whether to drink from His cup or not. You know, no no thanks, I'm driving tonight. No, 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 no. When God pours out His judgment, He forces His enemies to gulp it down. He forces them to keep gulping it down and keep gulping it down to the point of staggering in humiliating disillusionment and in utter despair. The only escape was if the Lord lifted the cup. And then we turn to the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, and find that the cup of God's wrath, as it was depicted in the Old Testament was actually also only a pointer. A pointer to something much worse. The occasions in the Old Testament when God poured out His cup of judgment on Israel or on the nations were only temporary. And they were only anticipations of the much greater judgment to come. God will pour out the cup of His wrath against sinners on the last day, but this time He will never lift the cup. Because of our sin, we all deserve to drink down the bitterness of God's judgment forever. And John says it like this in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day Or night. That's everybody's predicament in the universe without exception. Simply by being born into this world in Adam. It is everybody's predicament. tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of Jesus Christ. Unless God does something to solve our predicament. Friends, for Jesus to become our propitiation means that on the cross, He gulps down the cup of God's wrath so that we don't have to so that we never will have to. No mere man can satisfy God's wrath. And that's why many will experience the torment of God's wrath forever. Sinners cannot drink it down. We cannot empty the cup. We cannot satisfy God's holy displeasure Only God can satisfy His own wrath. And He does it in the person of His divine Son, Jesus Christ, who came and identified with us. That's why John gives us glimpses of Jesus' power before taking us to propitiation. God Himself becomes our propitiation in the person of Jesus. And this is how God has loved you and me. Propitiation is what happens when God's love for you meets his wrath against your sin. If you simply trust in Jesus as your wrath averting sacrifice, you will never meet God's wrath again. Stand amazed at the Lord's mercy that not all sinners are consumed In His mercy, God has chosen to love by directing His wrath against our sin. He has directed His wrath against our sin on His Son, who took our place, that we might have peace with Him. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is what God achieves at the cross for all who believe in Him. The total removal of His wrath. Not just part of His wrath, all of it gone in the death of Jesus. Picture yourself standing in a valley at the bottom of a dam. And the top of that dam you can't even make out quite clearly because it is so high. And behind that dam stands billions upon billions acre feet of water. And in an instant that dam broke with all the water rushing to consume you. And right before the water hits you, God splits the earth in front of you and swallows up every bit of water. And you are spared. When God offered up His Son on the cross, the dam of His wrath broke on Jesus for us. And God poured out the cup of His wrath on Jesus, and Jesus drank every last drop for His people, threw down the cup, and said, It is finished. If you trust in Jesus, then you are spared forever from God's wrath. And God is now 100% for you. That is good news. While being supremely powerful, Jesus becomes our propitiation. That's why we worship. That's why we sing. That's why we love. That's why we live for Him. All His wrath against my sin, gone forever. Simply by receiving. Simply by trusting. Now, with this gospel truth, I pray, filling your hearts with thanksgiving and joy... I want to lay out a few points of application. First of all, we must uphold propitiation as gospel truth. We must uphold propitiation as gospel truth. We cannot join the mockery of those calling the doctrine of propitiation into question. To call propitiation into question is to undermine the gospel itself as the Scriptures presented. In particular, I am speaking of some leaders who are writing some very popular books that are selling like crazy nowadays. Steve Chalk in England and Brian McLaren in the United States, who, to my knowledge, still have not retracted their statements that mock propitiation as cosmic child abuse. That's a quote. Then he continues. Both people, inside and outside of the church, have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross... Is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by His Son. So he's talking about what we've been talking about this whole morning. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by His Son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. That sounds really clever. But it's a complete departure from the gospel. And it's a sorry caricature of God's love and what the doctrine of propitiation is. Propitiation is not cosmic child abuse. To call propitiation a form of cosmic child abuse is to put the persons of the Godhead at odds with one another. More than that, it's the Father who gave up His Son. Not the Son who goes despite His Father's unbridled revenge as if God is a bit of a loose cannon of sorts. His wrath amounts to losing His temper and Jesus has to step in to rescue us. No, 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 hell no! Jesus goes willingly to the cross for us because of the Father's love. It is love that motivated God to give His Son as a propitiation and love that motivated the Son to obey His Father in giving Himself up as a propitiation. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means that God's love extended to us by providing what His holiness demanded. Propitiation doesn't contradict God's love in any way, as some are saying nowadays. In fact, God is wrathful towards sinners because He is love. Did you get that? He is wrathful towards sinners because He is love. To be loving necessarily means you abhor what is evil. Propitiation doesn't contradict God's love. It magnifies God's love. It reveals God's love. God loves himself supremely. And since he will not allow that love to go uncompromised when he turns to love us, he provided the propitiation. So the propitiation magnifies his love. God's love appeased God's wrath when he bore that wrath in his son that he gave up, Jesus Christ. And so we sing of God's love, like we did this morning. Bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. This is what we sing. Knowing that God's love is magnified in Christ becoming our propitiation. The Presbyterian Church, USA, the denomination I grew up in, did not publish the song In Christ Alone in their newest hymnal over this issue right here. You know the song by Stuart Townend, In Christ Alone. Instead of singing, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God is satisfied. They wanted to change it, to replace it with, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified the authors of the song wouldn't agree to the change, and so the committee didn't vote it in by majority. Now, to say the love of God was magnified could be a legitimate change until you start explaining yourself like this, and I quote, The other hymns that we included do not reject the reality of God's wrath, but they do not see the cross as an expression of it. they do not see the cross as an expression of it it's one thing to affirm that god's love is magnified in the in the cross it's another thing to reject that it is an expression of the wrath of god because it's in the expression as a wrath of god that we see god's love or they say again this is the committee that's voting on which hymns to include It would do a disservice to the educational mission, meaning they know that hymns equip the next generation of Christians. It would do a disservice to this educational mission to perpetuate by way of a new text, meaning in Christ alone, the view that the cross is primarily about God's need to assuage God's anger. In other words, the majority doesn't want the coming generations to think the cross is about propitiating God's wrath. And yet the Bible is screaming so clearly that the cross is about propitiating God's wrath, and that's how we see His love. Gary and others on the worship team, thank you for not shying away from the truth as you lead us and our children in song. We cannot follow people into this error, no matter how unpalatable God's wrath at the cross becomes to our culture. A second point of application. Propitiation means that we have an advocate in heaven when we sin. Propitiation means that we have an advocate in heaven when we sin. In other words, Jesus' propitiation has an abiding efficacy. He dies once, and that death has ongoing effects, such that when we sin, He stands in heaven alongside His Father, ready to forgive, ready to restore, ready to cleanse. I get this from 1 John chapter 2. Verses 1 to 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Did you get that? Jesus stands in heaven risen from the dead, and He stands there to keep applying His propitiatory death to our sins. That means you don't need to keep beating yourself up after you've confessed your sins and turned away from them. You don't need to keep being angry at yourself as if you must dish out the punishment to yourself. That is paganism. Paganism is trying to pacify the gods by something we do. And some of you have likely fallen into this lie that says, I could, I could just never forgive myself. I'm so angry at myself for this. That's not Christianity. That's not preaching this gospel that we've heard about this morning to yourself. For one, it puts yourself in the place of God and says that you have a better view of your sin than He does. It also suggests that you know how angry that you should be at your sin. Like you know how much punishment is necessary. How much anger is enough for you? How much anger will ever be enough for you? If this is you, my encouragement is to look to God's provision in Christ this morning. Look to God who sees your sin exhaustively for what it really is. Who knows how to be angry. Who executes His judgment perfectly. And who satisfied His wrath against you forever in Christ. Any other form of self-punishment on our part amounts to a rejection of what God already achieved on the cross. It's like telling Jesus, Jesus There is more of this cup that I need to drink. You didn't drain it all. I must drink it instead of you. And that is called self-salvation, not the gospel. Trust that God's work for you is enough. Jesus already bore all the anger that your sin merited. Third, propitiation means... That we obey God not to appease His wrath, but to enjoy His gracious smile as our Father. We obey God not to appease His wrath, but to enjoy His gracious smile as our Father. To enjoy His pleasure. If you're a Christian, God has no wrath left for you. Because He poured it all out on Jesus Christ. Yet how often some of us are tempted to obey God as if just trying to appease His wrath. As if trying to win back His favor. Maybe God will love me if I do. Maybe He will smile on me again if I do. Maybe if I do, all this fear I feel will go away and on the subtle lies go. Again, that's not Christianity, that's paganism. You can't do anything to win God's favor, to appease His wrath. But the truth of the gospel is that all God's wrath against you was spent on Jesus. So that now God is 100% for you. We don't have to obey to win His favor. He already has shown us His favor in the cross. The more we're captivated by His love toward us, the more we'll yearn to do His will. Even if you fail in your obedience, you must not believe that you have to win back God's favor. You have God's favor because Jesus is His favorite and you're united to Him. And if you're not obeying Him and He chastises you and He disciplines you and He brings all kinds of trials into your life to break you, you never once have to think, God is now against me? Ever! Rather, you can receive all His chastisements as coming from a Father who loves you enough not to leave you the way you are. And how do you know His love? You return again to the cross. And you see it in the provision that He made when He took away His wrath from you. Here's a fourth. We fight sinful anger against others with God's judgment in Christ. Or if you want to put it in... The words we've used this morning. We fight sinful anger against others with God's propitiation. Christ's propitiation means... that my anger toward other brothers and sisters is without warrant. Ever. Ever. For me to remain angry with someone... When God is not angry with that someone is to set myself against God. For you to stay angry with others is to ignore the anger you deserve but God took away in His love. This is the application first John brings out for us in, 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 in his First letter, Chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. We read verse 10 a minute ago. And this is, is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What's the result? Beloved, if God so loved you, you also ought to love one another. For me to stay angry with others is to tell God that I can do a better job than He can in the judgment seat. It's to tell Christ that His cross wasn't enough and that He needs my assistance in punishing this other person's sins. This is exactly the way both James and Paul talk about sinful anger in relation to God's wrath and justice as well. James says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve God's justice. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to Him. Leave it to Him on the cross and in the lake of fire. Leave judgment. Leave the wrath for God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When we entrust ourselves to God's perfect justice as displayed perfectly, In the propitiation of Christ, and when we take confidence that God will ultimately repay in the final judgment all who are outside of Christ, we are freed from taking matters into our own hands. We are freed to actually live peaceably with all. We don't have to take matters into our own hands pretending to be God, but can simply rest in Him and be patient with all. What we learn from the cross then is to put off all of our evil responses and anger toward each other and toward others because God has already taken care of it. And that's especially true for our brothers and sisters in the faith. And what we learn to put on towards them is living peaceably, trusting God to judge, and we put on selfless acts of love toward them. Which leads me to one last point of application. We need not fear death when bringing Christ to others. We need not fear death when bringing Christ to others. We have some of the best news to proclaim to the world. Everybody in the world is under wrath, and we can bring them the message of Jesus Christ, who is the only wrath averting sacrifice. You place your faith in Jesus Christ as your wrath averting sacrifice. There's no more wrath left for you. No more condemnation. No more fear of God's judgment that has to hang over you. We take the world, Jesus. We offer Him to people at all costs to ourselves so that they too can escape God's judgment and find life with God But some people will not like this message. They will threaten to kill you for it. And that's very real for many of you right now when you think of groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram running around the world. These people, these enemies of God, need this gospel as much as we need this gospel. And our job is not to take up the sword as a means of converting them. Jesus is clear about that when He rebukes Peter. Put your sword back in its sheath. The sword cannot change the inner man, no matter how much submission your weapons may appear to be bringing. So we don't raise the sword. We lift up the Son of God and say, look to Him, even with the knife at our throat. We want them, by looking at the Son of God, to be set free from the wrath of God. And that might cost you your life. But if the wrath of God has been satisfied in Christ, then death has nothing on the believer. Nothing. It has, as Paul says, death has lost its sting. There's no longer any fear of punishment associated with death for the Christian. We can, lay our li- we can lay down our lives happily to see our enemies come to faith. Christ's propitiation means freedom from the fear of punishment as we serve our enemies, even when it might cost us our lives. So the charge is to take Christ to the world with boldness and pray for God to use you in helping others see Jesus the all-powerful one who became our propitiation.